The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to the fourth season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season... Murder below the Nat line. For photos and additional information, please go to AJC.com slash breakdown. Follow us on Twitter at AJC Courts and at AJC Breakdown. I don't think if you put a gun to my head, I could tell you whether it was a black person, a green person, or a purple person. I don't think you could have seen it. I don't take something like that as a joke. When, when you say something about what you've seen or what you've done, it's not a joke. That's somebody's life. You're not playing with toys. You're playing with somebody real. I mean, it's, it's real. They run it in the database, and it comes up to Hercules Brown. And at that time, Hercules Brown is in prison for another murder. And so they think, well, you know, what, did we do this right? So they, you know, write it again. And sure enough, it's the profile of Hercules Brown. I mean, it is, that is it. I've been writing newspaper stories for decades. And one thing you never want to do is bury the lead. The lead is the first paragraph of the story. It contains the most important information you have, the news. You don't want to bury the news. You want to lead with it. So, we did that one thing you don't want to do. We buried the lead. Of course, when we do it, it's not a mistake. It's a device. Anyway, by now you know about the discovery of Hercules Brown's DNA on the mask that was found inside Donna Brown's car. Well, it was monumental, game-changing, lead material. Remember... Virginia Tatum said she saw one person and one person only, Devanya Inman, driving by in Donna Brown's car and dumping it in a closed-down Pizza Hut parking lot. If there was only one person driving that car, then why was a mask with Hercules Brown's DNA found in that car? Like I told you at the beginning, a lot of things about this case just don't make sense. This makes absolutely no sense. Don't forget what District Attorney Bob Ellis told the jury in his closing argument. If Inman was wearing the mask, Donna Brown never saw his face. That means she couldn't have identified him. And that means he didn't have to kill her. But he killed her as if she were nothing, Ellis said. Like stepping on an insect. Inman did that, Ellis said. But the mask didn't have a trace of Inman's DNA on it. Only Hercules Brown's. Let's say Hercules killed Donna Brown and Inman had nothing to do with it. That would mean an innocent man is in prison. But it's not just a question of gross injustice. It's even worse. Much worse. More than a year after Donna Brown's murder, Hercules committed a savage double homicide in Adel. A double murder that would not have happened had Hercules been arrested in the Taco Bell killing. 
Like I said, this is one sad, sad tale. And, in full disclosure, we buried another lead. Please stay with us on this one. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Breakdown. Amy Maxwell, then the head of the Georgia Innocence Project, had exciting news for Devanya Inman. It was spring 2011, almost a decade after Inman's conviction. Maxwell drove to the prison to tell Inman the stunning news about the DNA test. We went to visit him in person because I didn't want to tell him this on the phone. Maxwell had already had the good fortune to tell five men that newly tested DNA evidence had cleared them of their crimes. It's funny. Every time I tell um, one of the guys that the DNA has come back and it's not them, there's this moment of excitement. And then there's this moment of absolute terror. They're like, well, are they going to do something, you know, with that evidence? Or what are they going to say about that evidence? Or what does that mean? And I think also um, it's the being afraid that this means that something's going to happen that's positive for them. They don't want to get their hopes up. Maxwell recalled being able to break such news to Clarence Harrison after he'd served 17 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Harrison was convicted of abducting, sexually assaulting, and robbing a hospital employee as she waited at a bus stop in Atlanta. On this occasion, in 2004, Maxwell decided to go the extra yard. We actually got the prison to allow us to bring a camera in. So we set it up, you know, and he came in, and we were sitting there, and I said, Clarence, I've got news for you. And and we tried to make it dramatic because the camera was there, you know, and I said, the DNA came back, and it's not you. And he just sat there, and he's like, okay. And I thought, oh, how did I miss that he, you know, is he doesn't understand this. He might be mentally, you know, ill or, you know, I don't know, but he clearly doesn't understand what I'm saying, you know. And I said, Clarence, do you understand what this means? I recently spoke to Harrison about that moment. When she told me that we had uh, 10 results, she asked me that I want to know what the results were. I told her that, uh, you know, I said, I already know what the results is. That can't be for one result. She said, no, but you want to know the real result. Test result proved that you couldn't have been the person who committed the crime. I said, that test result wasn't for me. That test result was for you. Did you hear that? He said, the test result wasn't for me. It was for you. Maxwell was a bit deflated. She'd come to break major news that wasn't news at all. And I thought, oh, God, of course you did. It never dawned on me that... He'd be like, okay, good. And of course, that resulted in the world's most boring video. Maxwell also got to break the news to Inman. He was pleased, although, like Harrison, not ecstatic. And there was one other emotion at play. But of course, almost instantly was the fear. What are they going to do? You know, How are they going to step around this? How are they going to say that this doesn't matter? You know, because he, he had no faith in the criminal justice system. Devanya Inman had now been behind bars almost 13 years. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word ajc.com slash indictment newsletter. 
You probably remember Barry Sheck as part of O.J. Simpson's defense dream team. His evisceration of an LAPD criminalist on the stand helped to get Simpson off. Just a couple of years before Nicole Simpson's murder, Sheck had co-founded The Innocence Project. Its work with DNA evidence has helped change the way people think about our criminal justice system. Most states, including Georgia, have their own innocence projects that are modeled after Sheck's organization. Here's Sheck. So when you look at our DNA database, our database of DNA exonerations, which is, I think, over 350 at this point, you will see that in 47% of the cases, the person who really committed the crime has been identified and very, very frequently went out to commit, as in this uh, case involving Devonia Inman, other crimes. So nothing better illustrates the price we pay for all these problems in the criminal justice system that lead to wrongful convictions. Almost 20 of the exonerees were on death row, Sheck noted, and those are cases where there should have been no doubt as to who committed the murder. Sheck said the ability to recover DNA from the mask used in the murder of Donna Brown was not nearly so developed in 1998 as it is today. As for what it means in Inman's case, here's what Sheck thinks. So what I find most compelling about uh, the Devania Inman case is the fact that evidence was developed at the time of the trial that this Hercules Brown had actually confessed to the murder. And that was not allowed into evidence at the trial for reasons, frankly, I do not understand legally. The, the, the DNA hit that you got from the uh, cells found in the mask, which the prosecution told the jury was worn by Inman, <laughs> uh, or the person who committed the crime, right? You know, they say the person who committed the crime wore this mask. The DNA evidence in Inman's case is definitive. It's the sort of big break that law enforcement uses all the time to secure convictions in cold cases. As for its implications against Hercules Brown? Yeah, that makes it very, very powerful from an evidentiary point of view. Any prosecutor would love to have a case where you have an admission, you have somebody uh, testifying that he was making inquiries as to how to you know, pull off an inside job at a Taco Bell, and uh, then all of a sudden, boom, you have DNA from a probative piece of evidence at the crime scene, the mask that police hypothesized was worn by the perpetrator, and it all leads to one person. Believe me, scores of individuals have been convicted on evidence of that strength. Hercules Brown grew up in Adel, played sports, was in the band at high school. The people I talked to in Adel who knew Hercules said he was a good kid growing up. But then, something changed. One thing we know for sure is that he began using drugs. Bennett's Grocery was a mom-and-pop shop that sold sundries and southern cooking. The small store sat right by the railroad tracks that slice through Adel. Years ago, before the nearby timber mill closed down, workers there would stop by Bennett's to grab a bite to eat. Owner William Carroll Bennett routinely accepted IOUs if customers didn't have enough to pay their tab. Railway workers would also stop by to get some breakfast or lunch. On November 10, 2000, just months before Inman's murder trial, a Norfolk Southern train ground to a halt and three men, the conductor, engineer, and brakeman, hopped out to get a sandwich at Bennett's. Wayne Peters, the conductor, arrived at the grocery first, 
As he entered the store, a man carrying a baseball bat hit him in the head, knocking him to the ground. As he approached the store, Lloyd Crumley, the train's engineer, saw a man come out of the store carrying a bat covered in blood. Crumley said a second man came out of the store carrying a cash register. That man actually threw the register at him before joining his partner in an old Cadillac Coupe de Ville. The car sped away. Crumley, having dodged a flying cash register, had the presence of mind to pull out a pen and write down the car's license number, 104WRS, on his left hand. He may well have broken the case. Crumley then went inside the store where he found his colleague, Peters, lying on the floor moaning. After he saw Carol Bennett lying in a pool of blood in front of the meat counter, he ran back to the train, grabbed a cell phone, and called 911. The railway workers also found the cook, Becky Browning, on the floor behind the counter. She, too, had been beaten with the baseball bat. She would be taken to the hospital where she was pronounced dead. Carol Bennett died at the scene. Bennett was 48. Browning was 42. Police found the cash register on the ground outside the store. It had $279.43 inside. This meant two people had just been killed for nothing. Police soon tracked down Hercules Brown and arrested him. He was found wearing a Denver Broncos jersey of Terrell Davis, the former University of Georgia star running back. At the police station, Brown said his name was Al Rayleigh. But when an agent told him he recognized him from a prior investigation and knew that his name was Hercules Brown, Hercules stooped over and repeatedly banged his forehead on a desk. Hercules' accomplice was never identified nor arrested. But a sketch artist, relying on descriptions by the railway workers, drew up a portrait that was placed around town. Daryl Bennett, brother of Carol Bennett, still can't believe what happened. Carol was a, a real good guy, really was. Yeah. He uh, just, uh, everybody loved him, and he done, you know, he was just a good fellow. Deacon in church, and, and uh, had a family, and uh, they all come up and go to school, go to college. But that was quite a setback for us to have, to have the young family like that to be completely just, you know, just destroyed by something that just was no cause for. It just uh, wasn't, there was no reason for that. And um, his store was down there on 9th Street. That was on Dale Cook Lumber Company. And he uh, served breakfast and uh, a little lot of sandwiches and type stuff. And same way with hamburgers and sausage dogs. And, and they still talk about his chili dogs today, how good they were. Daryl said he can't imagine that someone who lived in Adel, someone who almost certainly knew his brother, would kill him so brutally. Here's Rochelle Pfeiffer, one of Carol Bennett's sisters. A lot of the people, you know, people that worked at the sawmill come and eat. He was always trying to help them out every way he could because they come and shop there and he wanted to help them like they were helping him. He was just a real good person. We just couldn't believe that somebody would do something to him because he was always helping everybody else. Daryl Bennett now operates his own country store just outside of Adel. About 15 years after his brother's death, he said he still can't get it out of his mind. I've been here 35 years, peering across the road, and I'm still just jittery as heck when like someone like comes into the parking lot and backs up to the, to the door, you know, like a lot of people do, but it just frightens you. You think they're going to run in and rob you, you know, or steal you or shoot you or kill you or something. I still wonder every day of my life what made them boys do that to him as good as he were. I know he'd let him have anything he had. He'd give him some money. He wouldn't have mistreated that one. 
but they killed her, you know, and there just wasn't no reason for it. Got the cash register and took it outside and uh, couldn't open it and threw it on the ground and left it. Didn't get not one dime, not nothing, for it and killed two people. Senseless, there's just no, uh, uh, no reason for it. Like Devanya Inman before him, Hercules Brown would stand trial for murder. And like Inman, Brown would face the death penalty. You'll remember that at Inman's trial, his lawyers unsuccessfully tried to put up witnesses who would have said Hercules told them he'd killed Donna Brown, his co-worker at Taco Bell. The only reference to Hercules Brown that I can find in police reports regarding the Taco Bell killing is a two-page summary of his interview with a GBI agent. On the Sunday afternoon after Donna Brown was murdered, Hercules told GBI agent Jamie Steinberg that he'd been working at Taco Bell for about two years, mostly preparing food. Hercules said the deposit of the day's take was usually made at night. Steinberg asked if there'd been any arguments with other employees or a boyfriend at Taco Bell involving Donna Brown. Hercules said no. Hercules also said there was a meeting the previous day of Taco Bell employees so they could be brought up to date on what was happening with the case. That's it. No questions about his possible involvement. No questions about where he was the night of the murder. Nothing. It took about a year and a half before the death penalty case against Hercules went to trial. But even before the jury was selected, Hercules decided it was time to strike a deal. If prosecutors would drop the death penalty, he'd plead guilty and be sentenced to life in prison without parole. In return, he'd finally finger his accomplice, Wesley Mason. He had worked with Hercules at an aluminum finishing plant. The arrest photo of Mason, by the way, looks uncannily similar to the police sketch that was posted around town. I mean, the resemblance is unmistakable. I really can't figure out why it took them so long to arrest Mason. And you can see the photo and the sketch side by side at our website, ajcbreakdown.com. Early on, before Hercules identified him, Mason was questioned by police about the murders. In fact, the police summary of the interview says they asked Mason what he thought should happen to the people who committed the Bennett's grocery murders. Mason said the death penalty was, quote, more than right because of what happened in that store, unquote. Bob Ellis, the former DA who prosecuted both Inman and Hercules Brown, said he put Hercules in a special class of criminal. But most crimes really are just people that make mistakes. Back in the old, old days, somebody got a little drunk and did something a little stupid. And then after that, people smoked a little marijuana and did something a little stupid, but mostly they were laid back. Mostly it was not this formulation of intent. You know, the TV and movie type thing where there's just this abject evil meanness kind of thing, really. There are a few, and Hercules would probably be in that group. I think that Hercules was probably a sociopath and would have great propensity to violence without remorse. Superior Court Judge Dane Perkins also went down the sociopath. Hercules pleaded guilty to murder on May 24, 2002. He agreed to testify against Wesley Mason to avoid the death penalty in exchange for life without parole. Before signing off on the deal, Judge Perkins spoke eloquently of the horror of the crime and Hercules' role in it. I'd really like to be able to share the sound of the judge's voice. I'd like to hear it myself. 
but we were unable to recover the audio from the proceeding. Perkins comes off like a lawgiver of old, passing harsh judgment on a deserving doer of evil. This is a slightly condensed version of what the judge told Hercules Brown from the bench, but all the words are his. All right, I've got some comments I want to make, and I want everybody to listen to this. Mr. Brown, you literally slaughtered Mr. Bennett and Ms. Browning, and in my opinion, you're nothing more than a terrorist in the truest sense of the word. Adel is maybe two miles in diameter, and the slaughter of two people in such a small community strikes terror in the hearts of everyone. This is not TV. This is very, very real. And your slaughter of Mr. Bennett and Ms. Browning has had a devastating effect, not only on their families, but the community as well. The community cries out for justice, and your plea in revealing your co-conspirator maybe will give some measure of justice to the families and to the community. My heart goes out too for your mother and father. They should never have had to go through this experience. They're good people. And all I can say to you, Mr. and Ms. Brown, is I'm sorry. Now, just some thoughts of some simple things you're never going to get to experience again, such as the celebration of your child's birthday, your father's birthday every year, your mother's birthday every year, your brother's birthday every year. You'll never again attend any more family gatherings or celebrations, such as Christmas or Thanksgiving or Easter. There will be no more simply going to local events that we all take for granted, such as a Friday night high school football game or simply a drive to Atlanta to see a Braves game or a Falcons game. There will be no more hanging out with your friends in the local joint or even a drive through Carter's Fried Chicken or the Dairy Queen. And when it comes time for your mother and your father and all your other family members to be called from this earth, which we all will be one day, you'll not be present to mourn or to give comfort or to receive comfort, because you'll spend the rest of your entire life in prison, and you will die in prison, never to be released for any reason. Case closed. Courts adjourned. A footnote to this whole sorry business. When he finally told prosecutors that Mason was with him at Bennett's grocery, Hercules said it was Mason who bludgeoned Carol Bennett and Becky Browning with the baseball bat. Mason, when finally confronted about his involvement, owned up to being at the scene. But he said it was Hercules, not him, who beat Bennett and Browning to death. There was already plenty of suspicion about Hercules' involvement in the Taco Bell murder, and it would surface once again. Mason, his co-defendant, was given two court-appointed attorneys, Clark Landrum of nearby Tifton and Josh Moore from Atlanta. Georgia law requires that at least two attorneys represent a death penalty defendant. Josh Moore said he traveled to Adel and began interviewing witnesses. Because Mason had already admitted to police that he was involved in the crime, Moore knew his primary focus had to be on Hercules, who would surely testify against his client for the state. Mason grew up less than half a mile away from Bennett's store, and he'd been buying candy bars and soda there since he was a child. Here's more. And so it really made very little sense that these people knew him and known, had known him for years. So it was kind of confusing how he would have expected to go into that store without a mask on and rob them and get away with it. You know, and so what he had explained to the GBI in his statement was that he had no idea that that was what was going to happen. Until it happened, until the moment that it happened, and then eventually he he was in shock. Basically, is what he said to the 
to the GBI, it quickly was clear to me that we needed to be investigating Hercules Brown and whether he was going to be a credible witness and what kind of a person he was. And so that was a, a, a high order of business for me when I was down there, other than getting to know Wesley's family and, and the community, was getting to learn about Hercules Brown and who was this guy who was going to be the state's star witness against us who had gone from death penalty defendant to star witness. And I guess it's no surprise to hear what Moore said he found out. And so I started digging into his background and, and asking people in the community about him. And, you know, it was no time at all before people were telling me, obviously, that he had killed two other people uh, before this had happened. And everybody, you know, all kinds of people were telling me that. It wasn't just, you know, my client's family or I just heard it all over the place. And so I started looking into the Taco Bell case and into the other case, Patel. That would be Shalesh Patel. In April 2000, Patel was working at the Easy Mart convenience store as he planned his family's move from Atlanta to Adel. In the meantime, Patel was staying at the home of the store's owner, who was out of town. It was seven months before the Bennett's double murder. Patel was repeatedly stabbed during a home invasion, and the killer bashed Patel on the head with a TV. The murder remains unsolved and is still open today. But when Hercules was charged later with the double murder at the Bennett store, the local Adel paper began openly asking whether he was behind the Patel murder as well. Now focused on Hercules, Josh Moore filed an Open Records Act request with the GBI. He wanted all of its records relating to the murder of Donna Brown at the Taco Bell. But Moore said his co-counsel, Clark Landrum, didn't like the fact he was digging into the Taco Bell case. Clark and I really started getting crosswise in a significant way. I distinctly remember a conversation with him when we were in the, the law library of the courthouse in uh, Adel. And he said to me, Josh, you're a, real, you're a real eager young man. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, we're, we're working on a death penalty case here together. And he said, well, you know, I'd like, I think it's time that you stop looking into this business, this Taco Bell business, this, uh, this case, these other cases with Hercules Brown. And so I was kind of surprised by that and just said, well, you know, why? And he said, I just think we don't need to be looking into that. I don't think that matters in this case. I don't think that has anything to do with this case. And so I explained to him why it did. And he just was sort of non, just really didn't make any comment about that, but just said, I'm just, I'm lead counsel in this case and I'm instructing you to stop, you know, looking into that. So I said, no, I'm going to keep looking into it. And, uh, and that's when things started to go bad between us. Landrum told me that none of that happened and that indeed it would have been stupid to cut off any line of defense for his client. He said he and Moore had communication issues and that's why they parted ways. No one involved in Inman's prosecution asked him to tell Moore to stop looking into the Taco Bell killing, Landrum said. Things got so bad between the two lawyers that Landrum asked Judge Perkins to remove Moore from the case. And Perkins agreed. But Moore wanted to stay on, so he made Wesley Mason an unusual offer. Fire Landrum, and I'll represent you for free. Mason agreed. So Moore brought in Don Samuel, whom you know as the legal expert in this podcast. Moore and Samuel soon filed a motion asking the court to admit evidence they had of Hercules Brown's history. They said three prior offenses by Brown showed he was a violent criminal. An interesting side note, guess where the defense lawyers found that information? 
It was contained in the prosecution's own case against Hercules Brown before he pleaded guilty to the double murder at the Bennett Grocery. The prosecutor introduced it as similar transaction evidence against Brown. Here are the similarities. In June 1999, Hercules attacked a woman without provocation, dragging her from a car and knocking her to the ground, where he then kicked her in the head and face while she lay helpless. July 2000, Hercules attacked a man, again without provocation, knocking him to the ground with a blow to the back of the head and, once again, kicking him as he lay helpless. The attack sent the man into convulsions, and the victim spent three days in the hospital. September 2000. This is a big one. Hercules was arrested after being seen entering a local supermarket with a gun under his shirt. The police pulled him over in the same Cadillac Coupe de Ville that he would use less than two months later in the Bennett and Browning murders. Inside the car, police found a loaded gun and crack cocaine that Hercules admitted were his. Inside the trunk, police found, wait for it, a black cloth and I quote, with two eye holes cut out for the purposes of a mask to conceal one's face, unquote. Remember how the prosecution in the Devanya Inman trial introduced similar transaction evidence that wasn't all that similar? Well, the similar transaction evidence in the Hercules Brown case seemed very similar indeed. You've seen enough cop shows to know what M.O. means. The discovery of the makeshift mask seemed to be part of a modus operandi for Hercules Brown. So how did it come to pass that Hercules was able to commit the Bennett Browning murders just two months after he was arrested in connection with the supermarket case? Well, he'd been released on bond. Another breakdown? Like Hercules, Wesley Mason would not go to trial. Prosecutors allowed him to plead guilty in exchange for a sentence of life without parole. Here's Josh Moore again. During that time, we were looking at the Taco Bell case. You know, my perspective on it had always been it was just a matter of sort of shoring up what I felt like I could already prove. We didn't have the DNA that exists now, you know, which would have changed that, obviously. But I felt that I would be able to prove probably that Hercules Brown is responsible for that if I'd been given the opportunity. Josh Moore then makes an observation that has no doubt occurred to you. I think it's clear that if the right person had been arrested, that these folks would still be alive today. He's talking about Carol Bennett and Becky Browning. I don't think there could be any question about There's no question about that in my mind. Again, because even if you take, you know, the dimmest view of what happened there, I still believe there's no question but that Hercules Brown, you know, without Hercules Brown, this crime never would have happened. And had Hercules Brown been arrested and prosecuted in the case where he should have been, where everybody in the community knew that he was guilty, then this incident never would have happened in the first place. And um, so I think that's the bottom line, I think, is that uh, they would both uh, still be alive today if the GBI had, had done their job and the prosecutors had done their job and they'd arrested the right person. Jump forward to 2011, when the GBI crime lab finds Hercules Brown's DNA on the mask found inside Donna Brown's car. Was that enough to spring Devanya Inman or at least give him a new trial? Here's what Inman had to say. When it come back to this guy, it's like everybody just closed their mouth and turned their head to another way. Like, hey, now it's in your face that you know and you still don't do nothing about it. Which proves a point that you knew from the beginning, just like we were saying, just like my family had been saying, just like I've been saying for all this time, that you knew that this dude committed this crime. 
and you convicted me anyway. And it's just wrong. I just feel like it's wrong. And they didn't want to kill the other people. And it's like, hey, they wouldn't look. And so when they find out this dude wouldn't kill the other people, it's like, how could you beat a female with a baseball bat? You tell me this guy ain't crazy, you know? Then they find his DNA inside the victim's car, and he worked there regularly with the victim. It's like, okay, now it all adds up to why and everything that happened. It's like, how could you keep this guy in prison and you know this? It's like you don't want to admit to the fact that you was wrong and, you know, we was right. With the DNA evidence in hand, Amy Maxwell at the Georgia Innocence Project was eager to ask Hercules Brown how his DNA came to be on the mask, but the state prison system wouldn't let her in to visit Hercules. But GBI agent Jamie Steinberg, the lead investigator on the Donna Brown murder, did get inside to see Hercules. Steinberg videotaped that interview, and you can hear him pretty clearly since the microphone was so close to his mouth, but Hercules Brown's responses are barely audible so I'll only play you a bit of the audio. Steinberg then reads Hercules' rights and proceeds. Hercules, the reason I'm here today uh, in the, uh, the case of uh, Donna Brown, who was the manager of Taco Bell in 1998, uh, the death investigation that took place there, um, the attorneys for Devonia Inman, Eddie Lee Inman Jr., had uh, petitioned the court for some post-conviction DNA testing. Um, and a piece of evidence, which was a mask that was recovered from the victim's car, was submitted to the crime lab for DNA testing, and that DNA testing returned uh, to you. Came back with your profile um, that was recovered out of that car. Do you know anything about that? Hercules shakes his head no. By the way, you can watch the interview video on our website at ajcbreakdown.com. The agent then asks Hercules if he'd had any kind of relationship with Devanya Inman. Hercules says no. At the time of Donna Brown's murder, were you hanging around with Devanya Inman? Hercules says no. Were you at all involved in any way in Donna Brown's murder? He says no. Did Devanya Inman ask you to help in any robberies or anything like that? Hercules says no. This mask was, was like I said, it was found in the victim's car. Of course, you know, Mr. Inman was... He was convicted by a jury on that case, and I mean, he's still serving, you know, his prison sentence on that. Um, but like I said, this this new evidence, you know, has has implicated you as, you know, at one point in time, at least having that mask on. So, I mean, do you have any explanation for it? At that, Hercules smiles, says something unintelligible, and then leans forward, rubbing his face with his hands. Here's Steinberg again. Yeah, I got a job to do, and I got to find out, you know, because it's the DNA evidence down the line. If there's a plausible reason why your DNA would be on that mask. That's the money question, of course, and Hercules' answer on the video is unintelligible. Steinberg then turns to a line of questioning that I find kind of puzzling. You know whether or not you put a mask on it, and that's the bottom line, or some type of material or something like that. I mean, as a joke, as a stunt. He said, did you put the mask on as a joke or as a stunt? I don't know what you know about DNA, but I mean, it's very specific, you know, and it's, if, if somebody else would have put it on, if they would have been saliva or sweat from somebody else, it would have shown another profile, and the only profile it shows was your, 
Hercules' answer is, once again, unintelligible. But it's clear when Steinberg asks his next questions, Hercules said nothing like that had happened. Steinberg tries again and elicits an answer of sorts. Here's what he said. I'm trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together. There's a piece of evidence that wound up in the dead lady's car that shows at one point in time you had it on. That's just what I'm saying. And I'm not saying you drove the car or whatever else. The car, when we found it, was abandoned and the mask was recovered and the testing showed that at some point in time, Hercules Brown had contact with it. Did you hear what Hercules said? That's just shocking to me. Steinberg finally tells Hercules he has a search warrant signed by a judge to collect his DNA by swabbing the inside of his cheek. There's some back and forth, and at this point, Hercules says he'd like to be appointed a lawyer. He also asks Steinberg, can I just refuse to give you the sample? Steinberg says he can't. He tells Hercules he can contest the search warrant later if he wants to. He then uses four Q-tips to take the sample. Amy Maxwell said the test again came back positive, a match for the profile found on the mask. Maxwell said when she finally saw the recording of the interview, she thought Steinberg had accomplished what she would have set out to do. At first I was so angry about it because it looks like they're giving him all the excuses, right? Well, could he have borrowed the mask from you? Could he have done this? Could he have done that? But by the end of the interview, they've given him all the excuses and he hasn't taken a single one of them. Didn't know Inman. I mean, knew him on the street to say, you know, oh, that, that's who that is, but didn't know him, didn't hang out with him, didn't borrow the mask from him. I mean, Inman didn't borrow the mask from um, Hercules. Next, on Breakdown. Maxwell recruits a top Atlanta law firm to join the cause, and Devanya Inman finally gets another day in court. DNA on the mask doesn't corroborate anything regarding well, Hercules killed and Devonia Inman was nowhere to be found. He was somewhere else. That's not the case. The mask simply indicates Hercules Brown may have been involved in this thing. It does nothing to exonerate Mr. Inman. Breakdown was reported and narrated by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. Sound design by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative. Original breakdown theme music composed and performed by Bo Emerson and Billy Guin. Additional music composed and performed by Chris Basta and Chris Nicholson, a.k.a. C1 and C2. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Bert Roten, Monica Richardson, Bo Emerson, Melanie Stolte, and all the great folks at the AJC, Buddy Hall, Chris Nicholson, Jesse Sino, Michael Williford, Maida Muhich and Lynn Taylor. <laughs>